Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are making our way through a paragraph-by-paragraph study of Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthian church, and we find ourselves in the last subsection in a kind of larger essay having to do with the question of meat offered to idols. The Corinthian believers had written to Paul and they asked him a question, well, what about meat that's been offered in an idol temple? Can we eat that? And of course, that's specific to Corinth. Uh, But Paul takes up the question uh, because he recognizes that all churches in every place deal with this issue of how do I live as a Christian in the midst of a culture that rejects Christ. Uh, So with that kind of set up, let's begin reading in verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is God's word. Would you pray with me now? Father, as we open up your word and listen to what you have for us from it, we just want to pause for a moment and rejoice that we can gather together freely 
without the threat of persecution from our government or uh, the suffering that many of our brothers and sisters face throughout the world. And, and we want to just pause and remember that there are brothers and sisters, churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are one with us and who will one day gather with us around your throne, but who today are living under the threat of persecution. Many have been thrown in prison. Some have had their goods plundered and their rights taken away. And Lord, we've been given this great blessing to worship freely and they languish. Father, I pray that you would give them persevering hearts wherever they may be found. I pray that you would give them a love of your truth that supersedes the love of this world. And I pray that you would grow your church in spite of the ragings of hell and the strategies of the enemy. Lord, I pray in particular for the churches in the nation of Iceland today as Pastor Guy and Gary Gibson uh, travel around uh, to, to different churches there and, and form relationships and establish a, uh, a beachhead for ministry there in Iceland. I, I pray that you would strengthen the saints and that you would create many opportunities for the lost to come to Christ through their ministry. I pray that you would keep these men safe and healthy that you would keep them focused and filled with your spirit, and that you would strengthen them for the work that you've called them to do. Father, we pray for the W family as they minister in another church again this morning and wait on uh, uh, technicalities and governments to uh, be able to go and fulfill the calling that you've put on their lives in South Asia, Lord. I pray that you would, uh, that you would just pave the way so that they might go and complete that work and that you would strengthen their spirit and increase their knowledge of your love and your compassion and your care for them today. And Father, we pray for everybody in this room. Each person has come in here in a, in a different, unique situation. Some with cares, some with grief, some with distractions, some with uh, heavy hearts, many, all of us really, with sins and imperfections that don't please you and some who are completely far from you. They don't have your Holy Spirit because they haven't trusted in Christ. And so I pray that for each of us, Lord, you would speak to us where we are. You would draw us to yourself so that many might be saved and might grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As a dad... It's hard for me to overstate the angst that I feel, the sleepless nights that I experience over a very real threat to our family. The constant onslaught of grass burrs in our front yard. <laughs> like many dads, I take life in stride. I, you know, pay the utility bills without too much bickering, I think. The challenges that our kids face at school, the, the impact that inflation has had on the price of white New Balance sneakers and jorts, even the inexplicable lengthening of eyebrow hairs. I can deal with all that. 
But to watch one's lawn die a slow and painful death in the middle of a drought with the seeds from a neighbor's weed field blowing onto your property and those infernal burrs clinging to your shoes and pant legs and then parachuting into the suffering St. Augustine around the mailbox is just almost more than I can take. It makes me feel like I failed as a father. You guys know what I'm talking about. You know, living like a Christian in a world that opposes the Lord Jesus Christ is a little bit like that. It kind of feels like you're keeping grass burrs out of your front yard. Sometimes it feels impossible to do. TV, social media, our friends, our boss, our teachers, our own hearts are always dropping little weed seeds into the yard of our lives and uh, choking out the healthy holiness of following Christ. And it's, tempted, it's tempting to just sort of throw our hands up and say, well, what's the use of fighting back? What's the use of even trying to live like Jesus in this world when we're constantly pressured in the opposite direction? I might as well just embrace the values and the priorities of the world and explain away the demands of Scripture because it's just too hard. The Corinthians were facing that pressure too. In fact, you could argue that it was in some ways more difficult for them than it is for us. The wicked seeds of worldliness were always blowing over into their lives. Idolatry was everywhere. There was an idol temple in every corner. Almost unavoidable. They resisted the worship of the emperor and the participation in pagan values at a great cost to themselves, socially, economically, and even at times, perhaps, at the risk of their lives. And some of the Corinthians had sort of thrown their hands up in the air and they had said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to push back against the pressures of the world. We, we know that an idol is nothing. We know that there's only one God. We know these things. So based on that knowledge, I think I'll just go along to get along and pretend right alongside my neighbors that these so-called gods really exist. The true God won't mind this little game of charades and, and this ruse. And they were tempted to let the weeds of worldliness to overtake the garden sanctuary that the church and that their individual lives as Christians were supposed to be. Throughout this larger section of 1 Corinthians comprising chapters 8 through 10. Paul has been making the case that they shouldn't do that. And in, in today's passage, he, he's sort of tying all of that instruction together and, and offering up a distilled set of instructions for Christians who are supposed to be holy vessels in the temple of the living God who happen to live and work in the midst of a, a pagan and rebellious culture. Here's what we need to know today. Here's the message. It's possible, friends, to be Christ-like in a culture that's pagan. It's possible to be Christ-like in a culture that's pagan. You say, you don't know my situation, Pastor Jake. You don't understand what I deal with in my home. You don't understand what I have to face at school. You haven't had to face what I have to face. You don't, know, you don't know my background. You don't know what I deal with at work. You don't get my financial situation, all these things. But listen, even for you, friend, today, it is possible to be Christ-like in a culture that's pagan. 
And in order for us to do that, there are three lessons, three takeaways that we need to pull from this passage. I'll just give you the three key words for you to remember, and then we'll fill them in with the lesson, okay? So here's the three key words, and then we'll go through each of these lessons one by one. Key word number one is exclusive. Key word number two, enjoy. And key word number three, edify. You'll, I'll explain what I mean by those in a minute. Exclusive, enjoy, edify. Here's principle number one. God is jealous for your exclusive worship. God is jealous for your exclusive worship. God demands your exclusive worship and devotion. Now, I know that that may seem radical to you, and it was radical back then. The culture in Corinth was very accommodating of multiple gods. They were fine with you worshiping Jesus, as long as you also recognize these other gods too. But God is jealous and wants your exclusive worship. Notice how Paul begins. Flee idolatry. Think about what that phrase implies. Flee. Escape. Run away. Get out of there as soon as you possibly can. Have nothing to do with idolatry. Flee. Now, this is very different from what the otherwise enlightened Corinthians might have expected the apostle to say. After all, he's already conceded back in chapter 8. Yeah, it's true. An idol is nothing. An idol is just a block of wood or stone. There's nothing special about that object. He's already admitted, and, and of course he would have already affirmed, that there's only one God. And yet here he tells us, not so fast, You've got to flee from idolatry. Don't have anything to do with it. So why? If the idols are just lifeless objects, and if there's only one real God, why is it that we need to flee from idolatry? What's the threat of this non-existing thing? Well, uh, he offers a very tightly argued explanation in verses 14 through 22. It basically has three parts. First of all, he says, if you're a Christian, you are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're partnering, you're partaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, if you are sacrificing to an idol in an idol temple, you're partaking or partnering with demons. And then number three, you cannot do both at the same time. You've got to choose one because God is jealous for your exclusive worship. So let's dive in and, and follow Paul's argument here in verses 14 through 22. Notice that he asks us to think about the Lord's Supper in verses 16 through 17. That's what he's talking about, the cup of blessing or the loaf, the, the bread that we break. He's talking about the Lord's Supper that we celebrate together regularly as a congregation. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, Paul says, think about our own ordinances as a Christian church. We get together for meals, too, just like any pagan in a pagan idol temple, and we recognize that when we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. That is, we are saying in a powerful and meaningful way, I participate and partake in the Lord Jesus Christ. I am one with Christ. I am part of Christ's family. Everybody, when, when we get together and we do that, that's what we're saying, and everybody recognizes it. This isn't just about ingesting food. It's a symbol of our union with Christ, and not only that, our union with one another. We're one with him, and we're one with each other. 
So Indian Creek, what that means is when we get together around the Lord's table, that means something. It's a powerful symbol. It means we're sitting down around Christ's banquet table. I think that in Baptist churches like ours, sometimes, at least in my experience, we often work so hard to remind everybody that the bread and the juice are just symbols that we forget to say, yes, but they're Christ's ordained symbols and they powerfully mean something and they ought to be honored and we ought to recognize that meaning and we ought to, we ought to recognize the moment as a moment of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and communion with one another. It, often it's kind of like we're eating the Lord's snack instead of the Lord's supper. No, it needs to be meaningful. Apparently, in the world of the New Testament, that meaning was not lost on them. The celebration of our union with Christ, the moment of thanksgiving for the sacrifice of Christ, the moment when the bread was broken and all around the table were made to know that they belonged together, was so holy, so powerful as to communicate the fact that when we take that supper, we are one with Christ and one with each other. We share in Christ. The same is true in a lesser sense with the sacrifices in the temple in Paul's day. Now, the temple, of course, has been destroyed, so those sacrifices aren't taking place today. But when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, they were still taking place. And he says, everybody understands that when somebody brings a sacrifice to the temple, the people, the priests, the person who brought that animal, they're all participants in the altar. They're all sharing in what's going on. And it's not that the animal has any magical significance in and of itself. It's that that event has significance. You're participating together in the worldview and in the fellowship with God that that represents. And so Paul says, okay, think about those two examples. Your participation in the Lord's table, the priest in the temple... We all understand what those things mean. Now compare that with your participation in an idol's temple. Everybody knows that if you're there participating in a sacrifice or a sacrificial meal, that you are a part of the worship that is taking place of those idols. You're part of the worship. You're sitting down to a meal with a pagan god. Does that mean that the food that's set before you is somehow magically changed into idol food, that it's different from regular food? No. Does that mean that the idol magically becomes some kind of powerful being? No, that idol's still just a statue. But here's what it does mean. He says, here's the thing about sacrificing to an idol or eating in an idol's temple. That idol is nothing, but behind the idol is a very powerful and sinister force that is seducing human beings into the worship of the idol because it draws away our worship from the one true God. He says, if you are participating in the worship of of an idol temple, you're actually sacrificing to demons and not to God. Now, Paul gets that from the Bible. But you say, okay, Jake, I'm thinking about this. You're telling me, I'm going back in my mind to the ancient world, and you're telling me that these ancient people, they would get together in the city, they would go to the idol temple, they would kill a sheep or a goat, they would... Uh, do this ritual, they would sit down to a meal, and you're telling me that that was fellowship with demons. I don't know whether to laugh or be offended. I mean, what are you saying? Moses, 
himself, in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, calls out the early Israelites because of this very thing. They were embracing the idols of the surrounding nations, and in doing so, they were actually serving demons. Here's what you need to know. There is a whole realm of creation that lies beyond our sight. And by the way, if, you, if you're tempted to dismiss this, understand that we modern people living in the United States, we are the exception to the rule. Our skepticism of this unseen realm is not shared by most of the people living in the world throughout all the ages of history. Most people understand that there is an unseen realm, that there are beings in this unseen realm, and it's, the realm is occupied by spiritual beings, small and great. Some of those beings operate in service to the Most High God. Typically, we call them angels. Uh, some of those beings operate in rebellion against the God who made them, servants of Satan who scheme and strategize in order to destroy anything that brings glory to God because they want the glory for themselves. And there are three things you need to understand about these demonic powers. They are personal, they are powerful, and they are pernicious. They're personal. That, that means it's not just, Paul's not talking about some kind of force that's out there. These are beings who have a mind, who have emotions, who have desires and a will. They have a scheme that they're after, okay? They want to do something. They're personal beings. They're powerful beings. They have been invested with these abilities to deceive, to wield influence over persons and things in the natural realm. Uh, John tells us that the whole world actually lies under the power of the evil one. They have power. They're pernicious. That is, they are deceptive. The primary way in which they gain an advantage over you is through lies and deceptions. We need to recognize and not be naive about the fact that the way they're wielding this power is through lies. So these personal, powerful, pernicious beings, they come and, and they, they sort of seduce human beings into the worship of an idol. It's not that that idol is anything. It's just that behind the idol are these powerful deceitful beings, and they're pulling constantly on us to, to, to worship idols. And, and uh, so where you read about people bowing down and worshiping Baal or Athena or Diana or whomever, you are looking at a whole system that is designed in collaboration between these evil spiritual powers and evil men who want power for themselves, and they are collaborating together constantly to pull people into the worship of these idols, and it's all a scheme from these evil powers to pull us away from the exclusive worship of the glorious living God. And, of course, the same goes for anyone bowing down to statues today. That statue's just a statue, but you'd better believe that even down to this day, there are demonic powers behind that worship system. And Paul says to the Corinthians, you need to flee from that. Because if you associate yourself with idols, you're going to provoke the jealousy of God. That's what the Israelites did in Deuteronomy 32. Moses talks about it. He says, you made him jealous with those who are not God's. You provoked the anger of the Almighty. He redeemed you. He cared for you, and yet you bowed down to these worthless idols. Now, it would be easy for us to sit here today and think, okay, well, I don't have any idols in my house. I mean, I used to play with action figures, but I don't anymore. So I don't have any idols in my house. I guess this is really not directly applicable to me today. But if you're thinking that, then 
you yourself are vulnerable to some specific strategies that the enemy is employing in the lives of so many in our culture today. Just because we aren't maybe tempted in in this culture to bow down before a statue doesn't necessarily mean that idolatry does not exist. Think about what an idol is. There are really three types of idols. And they don't have to be statues in order to be idols. Uh, Some idols are designed by the demonic powers to replace the living God. Have you thought about that? I mean, these are the obvious ones. Reject Jesus, worship this idol. Reject Jesus and worship the emperor. This is the kind of thing that the Corinthians were faced with. Reject Jesus and worship something else. In Paul's day, and especially in the centuries following, that was the choice given to early Christians in the Roman Empire. They were brought before the governor, and they were, they were told, hey, if you're a Christian, you're going to die. So in order to prove that you're not a Christian, why don't you take this incense and offer it before the genius of the emperor? And we'll know you're not a Christian because even pagans understood you can't worship idols and the living God because God is a jealous God. So some of these idols are designed to replace the living God, and the same is true today. Maybe the idol that you find yourself drawn to is a replacement for the one true God, and it's a little green God called money. Have you ever seen people worship that idol? You think about it all the time. You trust it. You rely on it. You worship it. It's an idol. Why? Because it replaces the one true God. God is the one you ought to trust, but when you're faced with a choice between what God says and what might get you more money, you begin to sort of hem and haul and make justification for what you want to do because really, in real life, your God is that idol money, not the one true God. Maybe you've been tempted to bow down to another God called romance. Like you do anything to find somebody to live the rest of your life with, and, and including disobey what the scriptures say. What does that show? That desire to be with somebody is an idol in your life. It's replacing the worship of the one true God. Some idols replace the living God with something else. Other idols reimagine God as something other than he is. They reimagine God. Now, this is a lot sneakier. The demonic powers have been very successful in our day and age with this type of idol. They, they reason, sure, Everybody can worship Jesus. They they are fine with you saying, I worship Jesus. They're fine with that. I'm telling you, they are. But what do they do sneakily? They take what that word Jesus means, and they begin to reimagine and redefine it in our minds. So that the Jesus that we are worshiping is no longer the Jesus who reveals himself in the pages of the Bible, but a Jesus of our own imagination. This is an idol, and it's taking place all over the world, and I'm afraid it happens in places just like this one. In all honesty, this is the type of thing that keeps me up at night as a pastor. Forget about the grass burst. This is the sort of thing that really is concerning. Uh, The Jesus of popular imagination is soft, almost effeminate. He's a really nice guy, nice to everybody all the time, never gets riled up, wouldn't hurt a fly. He's relatable. You could sit down and have a glass of iced tea with him. But the Jesus of the Gospels is not the same as the Jesus of popular imagination. You know that, right? I mean, I hope you're reading the Bible and learning who Jesus actually is. Because, yes, he's compassionate, but that doesn't prevent Jesus from preaching hell. He's patient. 
but he wouldn't suffer fools. He is the holy, righteous, revealed God. And by the way, we're at times we're made to see the burning brightness of Jesus' divinity in bold relief. He's the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days, and one day he's going to return to earth and destroy his enemies. Yes, that is Jesus. You know, if somebody treated you the way that we often treat Jesus, you would be very upset. You don't know me at all, you would say. But when we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, are we speaking of him as he is or just projecting out onto the world a reflection of what we want him to be? You see, an idol is something that, yes, could replace the living God, but it's also possible that an idol we're worshiping is just a reimagining of the one true God. This was what the Israelites were doing with the golden calf. Aaron put this golden calf out there and he said, hey, this is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He wasn't really replacing God. He was just saying God is totally different from what he revealed himself to be. That's an idol. Some idols replace God, others reimagine him, and still others reduce him to the level of everybody else. Uh, If the Roman colonists in Corinth had their way, that's exactly what would have happened to the Christians of the early church. They had absolutely no problem with people worshiping Jesus. They had a problem with the fact that Christ didn't take his place among the other gods. It was this idea that people would come in and they would say, Jesus is king. Uh, What? This exclusive sovereign power that God wields, that's what they had a problem with. And so what these idols... uh, in, in fact, this is what they would call them. They would call them atheists because they weren't worshiping the other idols. And so they, they assumed that they were not believers in God at all, and yet the Christians, they worshiped Jesus alone. And a moment's thought reveals that the demons are hard at work to do this very thing today. They're constantly working to clear a space for Jesus right alongside all the other gods that we worship in our day and age. We have... Uh, an academic-sounding word that we use to describe this. We call it pluralism. You have your Christ. I have my secular values. This other person over here, they uh, follow a different religion. Everybody's all, all equal, and everybody's worshiping their truth and, and following their truth. And really what that means is no one's actually following the truth because they can't all be true, so they're all just pure bunk. And what what are we doing? We're taking Jesus, we're taking the living God, and placing him right alongside all these other gods. It's an idol that reduces the living God. This is what the demonic powers are doing. They're, in every day and age, they are trying to replace, reimagine, or reduce the worship of the living God. And Paul says, God is a jealous God. He is desirous of your exclusive worship. He wants all of your heart. And if you're going to live as a Christian in a world that's given to pagan values, then you've got to be someone who worships God exclusively. Flee idolatry of any kind. Living like a Christian is possible in a pagan culture, but if you're going to do it, you'll need to worship God exclusively. That's principle number one. Notice principle number two. God gives us good gifts to enjoy. God gives us good gifts to enjoy. Our first key word was exclusive. The second key word is enjoy. God gives us good gifts to enjoy. And you need to know that if you're going to live a Christ-like life, excuse me, in the middle of a pagan culture. 
If you remember a few weeks ago, we spent some time considering Paul's example of self-discipline. He compared his life to the life of an athlete. He says, I discipline my body. I, I bring it into subjection so that I don't become a, a, a disqualified in the race that God's called me to run. And it'd be easy to take that verse, that idea, and kind of take it a little further than Paul wants to take it, to say that Christianity is sort of about depriving myself of any enjoyment or, or comfort, to live the life of an ascetic And a lot of Christians down through the ages have made this mistake. They thought, if I'm going to really know Christ, if I'm going to really be a follower of Jesus, then I've got to move out into the desert and starve myself and never take a bath and wear scratchy clothes. But Paul doesn't advocate suffering for suffering's sake. In fact, part of living as a Christian in a pagan world involves enjoying the blessings that God gives us to enjoy. Notice verse 25. He says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So Paul's getting really practical. He's wrapping up this whole conversation. And remember that in Corinth, you you had the idol temples, and then right off of the temple are these dining rooms that people would go eat at because there was always leftover meat from the sacrifices. And right near that, just a few yards away, was the meat market. And oftentimes, those sacrificial animals would, if there was leftovers, they would go into the dining room. And if there was leftovers even after that, they would be transferred over to the meat market and sold in the meat market there in the city of Corinth. And Paul says, if you are buying meat in the meat market, don't worry about where it came from. It's just meat. Just enjoy it. Just recognize that the whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, receive it as a gift from God because God owns everything. So he tells them, feel free to buy meat without asking questions. And he even tells them that they can have supper with an unbelieving neighbor who invites them over to the house. That is radical for someone like Paul. I mean, remember, Paul grew up in a Jewish home. That would not have been normal for his family to go eat in someone's house who's not a a, a Jewish person. But Paul tells Christians, he says, you can go and and if you're disposed, if you want to, go enjoy this meal in somebody's house. So let's apply that to everyday life. I want you to know that you have freedom to enjoy the gifts of God. And in fact, I would say you need to know that if you're going to live a faithful Christ-like life in the midst of a culture given to pagan values. Happiness is not a sin. Did you know that? You, you might forget that visiting some local churches, right? Everybody walks in and, you know, straight-faced and no smiles, no greetings. No, it's okay to enjoy the gifts of God. Being miserable is not a requirement of being a follower of Christ. I hope you recognize that. And so if you can enjoy a meal with gratitude to God, then praise God. You're free to enjoy God's good gifts as long as you can enjoy them with gratitude. Now, Going out and and gorging yourself and being a glutton, that's not enjoying God's good gifts with gratitude. That's taking more than God's given you, right? We all recognize that there's there's a difference between those two things. Because what you've done is you've made yourself a slave to that food. Uh, The same thing goes with other of God's good gifts. Uh, Sleeping with your spouse, that's enjoying God's good gifts. Going out and having an affair with somebody who's not your spouse, that's not enjoying God's good gifts. I'm just trying to make it really clear, all right? Because God didn't give you that person. You're just taking something that doesn't belong to you. 
You get the difference. If you can enjoy something as a good gift from God, then enjoy it. Recognize that it's a gift. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, don't think for one second that you have to give up being happy in order to be a follower of Christ. Now, you you do have to deny your desires. You have to deny the things that you've been trusting in instead of Jesus, and you have to say no to those things and, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You have to say no to trusting in your own good works, but you don't have to be a miserable person to follow Jesus. That's not God's desire for you. He wants you to enjoy who he is and the things that he's given you as good gifts as long as you can do so to the glory of God. Look at the example of Jesus Christ. He knew how to enjoy God's good gifts. Yes, he was very disciplined. He denied himself often. He wasn't ruled by his bodily passions by any means, but he knew how to laugh. He knew how to eat a meal. He knew how to have an evening with friends and uh, share stories and enjoy the gifts of his father. So if you're going to live a Christ-like life in a pagan culture, it's possible, but you'll need to learn to enjoy what God gives you as a gift. By the way, this is an aside, but I think this is a very important application of this text. You'll need to learn how to enjoy God's gifts, but you'll also need to learn, some of you need to hear this, you also need to learn how to let other people do that too. It is ironic to me that this passage, one of those sections of Scripture, that some strong-minded Christians have used to control what everybody else does. Don't do that. That's not why Paul gave us this passage. I was part of a ministry years ago in which the leaders told us that we couldn't enjoy any music that wasn't explicitly Christian or any music that had drums or electric guitars or... Uh, There was a bunch of things. There was a whole list of bad things you couldn't have in your music. And they said, you know, get it out of your car. Don't have it on your radio presets. Don't have it in your house, your CD player. If you want to be a part of this ministry, you cannot enjoy these things. Essentially, they were saying, we want to control your life. Like, it offends me, and they use a passage like this one. It offends me that somebody would listen to music that has an electric guitar in it, so because it offends me, you have to get rid of it. And that's not what Paul's saying at all. So, Aren't you glad? <laughs> that's a misinterpretation of that passage, and it's one that we tend to snicker about, I think, at least in this room. But here's the point. Whether or not you are offended is not relevant to what Paul is saying. What Paul is talking about, as we'll see in a moment, is whether my actions are tempting you to sin or to stumble in your faith. So no, this passage isn't an excuse for you to control what other people do that you have a strong opinion about. In fact, if we're going to live like Christ in a pagan culture, then we're going to have to learn to enjoy the blessings God gives us as a gift, to laugh, to tell stories, to eat food to have people over the house, to meet up at the park, to go swimming at the lake. In fact, some of you need a homework assignment today. You need to go enjoy something to the glory of God. Can you take that as a homework assignment? If you're going to live like Christ in a world that's given to pagan values, you need to enjoy the gifts that God gives us to enjoy. Principle one, exclusive. Principle number two, enjoy. Principle number three, Make decisions that edify your neighbor. Make decisions that edify 
your neighbor. The key word here, again, is edify. It means to build up, to strengthen. Remember what Paul's been saying throughout this whole letter. He's told the Corinthians, church, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you can imagine that building, what he's telling the Corinthians to do is to strengthen the timbers and the chinks between the stones so that that building is strong and long-lasting and gives glory to God. Build up your neighbor. Build up your church. Build up fellow believers in Christ. Edify your neighbor. Notice the specific scenario Paul mentions in verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. In other words, there's nothing inherently wrong with the meat that you're eating on your plate. As long as you aren't participating in the rituals of the idol temple because food is just food. The idol doesn't magically change the food into something inherently evil. But let's say, Paul says, that you're in the meat market and you're looking at the different cuts of meat and you're about to buy one to take home to cook for dinner. And the vendor says to you, hey, this cut over here, these pork chops, they were offered in the temple of Asclepius. And so if you buy these, you know, he's implying, you might have extra luck this week. And Paul says, okay, if that happens, buy a different cut of meat. Because you don't want to communicate, without meaning to, to that person that you believe and you buy into the worldview adopted by the worship of idols. Or let's say you're eating at a neighbor's house, and he sets before you the food, and, and he says, uh, I'm really excited about this meal because today uh, we're, we're serving steak that was first offered in the temple of uh, Diana or whoever it is. Don't eat it then because what you're doing is you're implying, you're communicating inadvertently to that person, I buy in to the worship of idols. Or you're sitting at dinner and and you're there with a brother in Christ and he's maybe got a little bit more sensitive conscience and he leans over to you and he whispers, this meat was offered to an idol. Then don't eat it. Because if by eating that, you might encourage this person to actually participate in the worship of idols and you want to make sure that you're edifying and building up your neighbor. You see, the issue isn't the substance of the meat, it's the significance of the meal. And to understand that you have to be aware of what your neighbor is thinking and resolve in your heart that you aren't going to do anything that will harm your neighbor and cause him to sin. Now, that's Corinth in the first century. Let's bring it into mineral wells in the 21st century. The principle is basically this. As Christians, we're free. Like, we're free in so many ways. We're free from the power of sin We're free from the curse of the law. We're free from the the hamster wheel of trying to earn salvation by doing good things and get God's attention. We're free from, uh, we're, we're free to enjoy God's gifts for God's glory. But freedom isn't really freedom if you're if you're not free to say no to your preferences in order to build up your neighbor. You say, I'm free. Okay, well then you're free to tell yourself no in order to build up your neighbor. That's what real freedom looks like. In other words, Paul is asking us to evaluate what is driving us. What gets us up in the morning? Is it to satisfy our passions? Is it to satisfy our ambitions? Is it to pursue our goals and maximize our pleasures? To build our own reputation? Or is it something else? For Paul, it was very simple. My goal 
is to live in such a way that as many people as possible see my life and hear my speech and come to Christ. That's my goal. I want to build up my neighbors. Look at the world in which we're living. Satan is working overtime to destroy the image of God, the worship of God. The world is designed to draw our attention away from Christ, to distract our children from the truth of Christ, to capture our affections, and he's no amateur. He's been doing this for a while. But I don't know that, if we, that we really appreciate just what's possible for the church of Jesus Christ, for Indian Creek Baptist Church and churches like ours. If we decide that in spite of the demonic influences in the world, in spite of the discouragement in our families, in spite of the temptations to sin, in spite of the powerful pool of greed, in spite of how exhausting it is to be faithful year after year, that in spite of all those things, we're going to be different, that we are going to live like Christ in this pagan culture. We're going to be holy. We're going to be Christ-like. And and folks, I want to tell you, if you're a believer in Christ today, if you've been given new life by the Holy Spirit of God, if you have fellowship with God and with God's people, then you can do it. You can be Christ-like in spite of all the things that you're facing in a pagan world. It's possible for you to do. How do I do that? Well, we've got to give God our exclusive worship. That means that tomorrow when your alarm goes off, you're pulling out your Bible instead of pulling out your phone to watch videos. That means that when you're making plans for next weekend, you say, no, I can't do that because it would take me away from worshiping with God's people. That means that when everyone in the locker room is talking about filth, you get changed and you get out of there because you are devoted exclusively to the worship of the living God and you're not going to give yourself up to an idol. How do I live Christ-like in a pagan culture? I have to enjoy God's gifts with gratitude. I don't try to control people. I don't try to appease everybody else. I'm living my life before God. I'm going to enjoy the gifts that he's given me. I enjoy, I stop and notice the ways that God has cared for me and I Thank him for it. I enjoy the goodness of the Lord in my family, my church family, even in the simple pleasures of eating and drinking to the glory of God. How do I live Christ-like in a pagan culture? I seek in all things to edify my neighbor and build up others. I believe this is one of the main reasons why Christ has left me in this world, why Christ has brought me to this church, why Christ has put me in the job that I have, why he's given me the family that he's given me. Why? Because Jesus is actually giving me a role in building up those that God's put around me, in allowing them to see Christ in me so that they might be saved. You, know, you, you want to know one of the reasons why so many churches, so many families fail to live up to the, to the, the uh, goal that God has given them as Christians in the world? It's because they're seeking to fulfill their own preferences instead of seeking to build up other people. And folks, if we would decide, I'm not going to be that way. I'm going to say, no thanks, I don't need to exercise my rights, but I do need to build up my neighbor. Then there's no limit to the kind of ministry that you can have in your individual life and the kind of things that God might do through our church. While demons rage and the world around despairs, God's church, triumphant, offers life-changing hope. It's possible to be Christ-like in a culture 
this page. Would you pray with me now? Father, we want to thank you for all your wonderful gifts. This radical idea that even though we rebelled against you, we earned your judgment, we took the good commandments that you've given us in your word and said, no, I'm going to go my own way. In spite of all that, you and your love and your mercy and your steadfast, loyal love to your covenant and to your people sent your son into the world to lay aside his rights and his honors, to take on the poverty and the pain and the difficulty of humanity and then to take the ultimate step and and go to the cross so that we might be welcomed into your family. And then for you to actually bless us with the ability to enjoy following you and representing you in the world. Father, your grace is amazing. So I pray that in this moment, as the Holy Spirit is working in each of our hearts, that you would cause us to respond in obedience and humility to what your word has to say. Father, I pray that if there's any here who have been entertaining an idol, that you would expose it and give the power to repent and turn from that and worship you exclusively. There are any here who are just in misery because we've gotten our eyes off of the gifts that you've given us. Father, I pray that you'd cause us to count our blessings. And if there are any here who have been convicted because I've been focused on my preferences instead of building up my neighbor, Lord, I pray that you give us the strength to say I was wrong and I'm going to change in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Father, we pray that you do your work even in this moment. In Jesus' name.